Well, thank you so much about uh, the, that last song in particular. I greatly enjoyed that. Uh, it's from Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 16, in which he talks about how just overwhelming cascades of wave after wave of grace comes our way, and what a blessing that is to us. Uh, this assembly is in a study of the book of Galatians, and they invited me to come and uh, open their series in Galatians. And so uh, this morning we were looking through Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. They also asked me to, in a sense, give a synopsis or an overview of the book of Galatians. And so that's what I will seek to do tonight. If you weren't with us this morning, I think you'll still be able to follow along well enough, and you'll get a sense. We'll be thinking a little bit more topically throughout the whole book of Galatians. It's one of the earliest epistles in the New Testament, written about 49 AD, before the Jerusalem Council that tried to solve the problem. Uh, does a Gentile seeking to come to Christ have to be circumcised to be saved? And it would uh, cause us uh, to wonder whether we don't just turn to Christ, but that we reach Christ through Judaism. Uh, you will notice in the teachings of Christ that he said that he is the way to God, uh, he's the only way to God, and he did not instruct people uh, to go through Judaism in order to find him and to find his relationship with God. The Galatian letter is a letter much like the book of Romans, but in a shorter way and a very pointed way to a particular set of four churches uh, in what would today be modern Turkey in the south end of that as he led these people to Christ and planted churches and then moved on to plant additional churches, people came after him uh, claiming to be sent by James of Jerusalem, claiming to be teaching the truth, and they confused the Galatians and caused them such agitation that they actually were doubting their own salvation. When I see you all here from Tignapas, I think of my own son who was in high school, who twice came out to visit you. Uh, he greatly enjoyed getting to know many of you. You may have been much younger at that point. Uh, but uh, one young man uh, he was sharing his faith with, and uh, actually uh, that person professed faith in Christ. I had recently given him for his birthday a big, thick, Ryrie study Bible, and he carried that with him out to the mission. And uh, he gave it away uh, to the young man who trusted Christ, and he came back Bibleless, and and was uh, saying, "Dad, I hope you're not mad." Uh, well, uh, hopefully you have a Bible tonight, and you can follow along with me uh, as I take you through uh, portions of the Book of Galatians. The first thing I want you to notice is that not everybody that comes saying they're here to help actually are. There are bad people out there who have ulterior motives, and though they may be telling you they're good people and telling you they're from the good place like Jerusalem and the church uh, where it originally began, uh, they are not helpful and actually have uh, caused great difficulty. So if you have your Bibles, thumb with me really quickly through the book of Galatians and notice in chapter 1 verse 7, he says they 
have brought a gospel that is not the same. It's disturbed them. He says at the end of verse 7, they distort the gospel of Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 4, where it describes uh, the kind of people they are. They say they're fellow brothers in Christ, but they are not. He says, verse 4, it was because of the false brethren who'd sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. And he means this not just in relationship to Christ, feeling as if we are in bondage because we've not successfully kept the law, but they actually want to bring the people into bondage to them particularly. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. He says, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out, telling you that you are not saved because you have not obeyed the Mosaic law, you've not been circumcised, you've not obeyed our dietary restrictions, but notice their motivation, in order that you may seek them. It's not about leading you to Christ, it's about leading you to them so that they can control you. Now look at chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, meaning to appear to be deeply religious by the way in which they restrict their freedoms, try to compel you to be circumcised. That's a sign of the covenant relationship between uh, the children of Israel uh, given by the law uh, to Moses and in relationship with God. They're seeking to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. Notice he's calling them hypocrites. He says, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They're seeking to get credit for how well they can control you, boss you around, and tell you what to do. What I think is interesting is when I go to camp, I see young new counselors sometimes who have never been given so much authority as to rule over a bunch of campers. And they'll be bossing them around, and they'll be punishing them, they'll make him run laps around the field and all this kind of stuff. And it amazes me how camps and even our college back in Iowa had to continuously come up with new rules to try to restrain the sin that we see in these people. I can remember up at Verdugo Pines, our camp right here, uh, one particular year I was up there and they were quickly going through the rules at the beginning of the camp and they said, thou shalt not throw rocks in the pool. And I was thinking, like, rocks in the pool? I've never heard a, a rule like that. Where have I ever been where they had rules against throwing rocks in the pool? I thought, like, this must be a particular problem here. But then I met that lifeguard. She was so bossy, so snotty. The kids would throw a rock in the pool, and she'd make them all get out. And then she would, nice and dry and warm from the sun, have to dive to the bottom of the pool and get the rock out, put it away. Then she'd let all the campers go back in the pool again. I disliked her so much for how bossy she was, even I felt like I wanted to throw a rock into the pool. I wanted to make up 
new rules of things that should be done and not be done. Back at the college, we have students that were once in our class and are now all grown up and mature, and they come back to banquets and things, and, and they would ask about the rules. You know, have the rules become more lax or are the rules stricter? And we'd talk about various rules, and they'd say, that rule was because of me. They took pride in the fact that they had done something so bad and so creative that we had made a whole new rule just for them. It's as if these people are trying to capture the Galatians so that they can boss them around, so that they can control them, and so that they can boast in their ability to control them. Don't let it happen to you. Now let's look at the problem with the Galatians and the backsliding that they're doing. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm so amazed that you're quickly deserting him who called you for the grace of Christ for a different gospel. He says, you're going AWOL. You're rebelling against Jesus Christ himself. How could you give up on the clarity of the gospel? He says that he'd actually succeeded in leading them to the Lord, that their sins were actually forgiven, that they actually had begun to grow in Christ. But the problem is they're nervous about the reality of their salvation, and now they're even trying to earn their sanctification, the progress of their Christian growth by works. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's strong terminology. That's saying someone's cast a spell on you. You're acting so weird. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit? And by that he means they actually did receive the Spirit, and the Spirit had begun to affect their lives. He said, how did you get the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? No, I didn't teach you anything like that. Or by hearing with faith. He says, you simply believed. You accepted God's free gift of salvation by faith, and he gave you his Spirit. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, the beginning of their Christian walk was in the power of the Holy Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Are you trying to gain sanctification, holiness, satisfaction in God's pleasure of your life living in a manner that's pleasing to him through fleshly pursuits? Why did you begin with the Spirit and then be led astray by these people to live in a fleshly manner? He says, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Go ahead to chapter 4, verse 9. He says, you've become enslaved to them and gone back to the ABCs of Christianity, the elementary things of the world. Verse 9, Galatians 4, 9. But now you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days, months, seasons, years, in the ancient times, they had all kinds of superstitions, and they worshipped things in weird ways. Like, I don't know if any of you got weird on Friday. Did you see that moon on Friday? Did you align that with your horoscope? You know, did you start getting all, all weird about this? Like, well, this is a harvest moon. We have not had a moon like this for years and years. We won't have another moon like this for years and years. This is a sign 
This is the kind of stuff they were getting into. They began to observe pagan things rather than worshiping the one true God. He says, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. Drop down to verse 19, Galatians 4.19. My children with whom I'm again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone. I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you listen to the law? Well, with that introduction, let's actually listen to the law. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 19, and let's understand his perspective on the law. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you realize that there were 613 commandments in the Mosaic law. And you know, this was the way in which, in a theocracy, God ruled over his people. It had various aspects of how they would relate to him and how they would worship him. It had aspects regarding their civil uh, organization as a people, and it had aspects uh, regarding their health and various things such as that. Uh, David will say uh, to read God's laws like eating honey as it drips from the honeycomb. He says it's his delight. There's nothing wrong with understanding God through the law, but the question is, do you believe that you can earn God's favor by behaving so well that you have motivated him to love you or like you or be pleased by you? The law has an edge to it, and you may not have noticed this as you have tried to do this. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. This is speaking of until Jesus Christ comes. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God's only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. Did you hear what he just said? He says, no matter how well you keep those 613 commandments. And by the way, there's not just 613. Those are the ones that are actually in the Bible. They had to make corollaries to all those laws to explain how they, as leaders of the people, wanted you to relate to those laws. These ended up with about 3,000 total, many of which were just about what you were supposed to do on the Sabbath day. Like, surprise or not, I have a Sabbath setting on our new stove. I, I was actually reading the instructions. Sabbath setting? What does that do? Do you know what it does? You just turn it on, it stays on all Saturday. It stays from Friday night at sunset until Saturday night at sunset. Then you never have to touch a button and you don't work on the Sabbath. It's the silliest thing that people get into. But he says, could you have been righteous enough to please God well enough that he would save you based on your obedience? He said, if it were so, I would have told you. No, he says, verse 22, the scripture has shut up or boxed in all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He says, the law made it evident that I fail before God and that I need his grace. Do you know we wouldn't feel like we needed grace if we felt like we were perfect? 
In school, for example, if you were perfect in the way in which you related to your teacher, if you answered every question perfectly, if you did every assignment and got an A-plus on each one of them, you'd say, I don't need no grace. I earned it. But here's the problem, folks. When it comes to the law of God, not one of us has kept his law perfectly. It boxes up under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody, confined under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. This is speaking of your schoolmaster, your disciplinarian. Uh, let's call it a really mean nanny who was watching over you and making sure you made it to school on time, making sure you obeyed your parents and that kind of stuff. The law is, in a sense, not Mary Poppins, but an evil representation of a person like that that actually forces us that there's no other way but to turn to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. He makes that extremely clear. Go back to chapter 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. I don't know if you noticed, he said that three times, just hoping it would sink in. Not one of us could ever perform well enough for God to accept us. Those of you that are married, uh, think about your spouse and think about uh, before you were married and how much you were in love and uh, how much everything was perfect. And then uh, the fact that as you have grown to know each other better, you begin to realize neither one of us is very perfect. Each of us actually has areas in which we need to grow. And we're going to have to adjust to each other's imperfections. You know, we might be on our best behavior when we're first getting to know each other. Uh, we're going to make sure that we don't do anything offensive. But as we begin to live with each other, it's not going to be so easy. In the same way, we begin to see faults that we have that we may not even been very aware of. I think that's part of the reason why God gives us a spouse, just so that we become more aware of our own faults, so that we're more aware of how imperfect we are. I think, much like sandpaper, our spouse is in many ways to sort of take off our rough edges, to actually help us grow and mature in Christ, help us to become a better person. We were learning this morning that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and that unless we were perfect, we could not please him by keeping the law. Why James himself says in James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. If we mix in the requirements of the law to our salvation originally, that's called justification when he declares us righteous, or our progress in becoming more Christ-like as Christians, most of us are in that state right now of growing in sanctification, or eventually our glorification when we go to be with Him. If we start mixing the requirements of law into the various processes of our salvation, 
we're going to ruin the whole thing because it's all by grace. God is no man's debtor. He doesn't owe us anything. Everything I receive from him, from justification to sanctification to glorification, is by grace. Now, most of us don't think that way. Most of us think, like, I'm doing really well because I'm behaving really well. In fact, I'm hoping to ask him for a lot of really good things because I've been really behaving <coughs> lately. No, it doesn't work that way. Nothing I do obligates him to do anything in return. In chapter 6, he gets to the point to explain that it's a love relationship. I serve him out of love, and he rewards me out of grace. It's a revolutionary concept. It will save our marriages if we first learn this. Uh, let's go to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, beginning with verse 1. He says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't believe the lies these false teachers are telling you. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. It's all about a love relationship, not performance. That should be freeing to us to say, God loves me more than I will ever know or appreciate. And what he's asking me to do is love him in return. It's a love relationship, not a relationship of performance. Listen to what he says about these Judaizers who are so interested in circumcision. He says in verse 12, would that those were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. It's actually the verb to cut off in the middle voice, meaning you cut off yourself. In other words, if you're so happy about circumcision, just cut the whole thing off. He says in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Listen to this phrase. Memorize it. Live by it. But through love, serve one another. For those of you who are married or those of you who just have friends, let me give you the best advice I could possibly give you, and it's not my advice. It comes straight from the Scripture. Here is how you have a good relationship with a friend or with your spouse or with anyone, really, because this is how God asks us to relate to him. Through love, the empowerment of God's love flowing into us, we love him in return, and we serve each other. So in marriage, it's not about what can I get out of this, although I will get things out of this because my spouse loves me, and she loves me enough to help me. She loves me enough to point me in the right direction. She loves me enough to make me a better person. 
But as I serve her and she serves me, as I love her self-sacrificially, as she reflects that love back to me like a mirror, like the moon reflects light, then we have found what it means not to live in hypocrisy, not to live in legalism, not to live self-righteously, not to try to control other people. We found out what it means to reflect the love of God and how we relate to other people. If you read 1 Corinthians 13, this is sort of a loose translation, but you're going to get out of it, you're not allowed to keep score. I invite you to go read it and see if you can't find that for yourself in the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13. That's the love chapter, how we would love someone else. What does it mean to keep score? It means you get exasperated at some point and you say, I have done this for you, I have done this for you, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? Another way to keep score is, you did that last week, you did that yesterday, and now you've done it again today. That's keeping score. Love doesn't keep score. Do you know that the way God treats us is in a loving, accepting relationship of building us up? He doesn't remember our sins against us. That doesn't mean he's not aware of them. He's omniscient. It means he doesn't hold them against us. He relates to us as if he has forgiven these sins. And he asks us to respond to him in love. It's a beautiful thought in what he has said. If you think of what a maid does, let's say I hired a maid to come in and help me in my house. Uh, I'd say, okay, uh, could you clean house for me? Okay. I could say, uh, laundry, could you do laundry for me? Okay. I could say, can you cook? Do you know how to cook? Could you cook for me? I could hire all these things done. Now, I have a wife, the mother of my children. She has her entire life done similar things for us. And we don't pay her. But that doesn't mean we don't love her. She does not clean house, wash clothes, feed us in order to keep score and have us count the number of points that she's earned. And then we say, I think you're a good wife, or I think you're a good mother. That's not a loving relationship. In fact, that's not why she does this for us. She does this for us because she loves us, because this is what we need. She wants to bless us in the way in which she serves us. Let's imagine a friend of yours invited you over for dinner. Wonderful dinner. You enjoyed the dinner. Uh, you had nice conversation after the dinner. And at the end of the dinner, you get up from the table and say, that was a really nice meal. I, I think that was worth $20. <laughs> the hostess is going to be completely offended. The hostess is going to be horrified. What? You think I did this for money? You think... You think I did this so you'd pay me? I, I told this story to one other person. A lady came up to me afterwards. I've actually eaten in her house many times. She goes like, I would have accepted the $20. <laughs> it's actually funny. But no, we're in a grace-based relationship. When a person invites you over to their home, it's all on grace. They're not 
earning anything from you or expecting anything from you. They're expecting to show love to you, and they're hoping you would receive that love, and maybe you'll even give love back to them. This is the kind of relationship that the book of Galatians is talking about. It's waking them up to say it's not about the law, it's not about rules, it's about love. I actually went to one camp in which the, the, it's funny how directors of camps are sometimes. He goes, we only have one rule here. I thought, like, this is going to go over well. I go, like, what's the one rule? He goes, no messing around. <laughs> I was thinking, like, well, that's creative. I guess you just keep reinterpreting what that means every time you see somebody doing something. No messing around. Okay, well, whatever. So let's just ask ourselves, what in the world were the Jews doing trying to keep the law well enough to earn favor with God? And why would these Judaizers be so motivated that they'd travel halfway across the known world to confuse and try to dominate uh, these people that Paul had led to the Lord? I'll explain. To break a law in their idea would be a deathly act. Let's say this is a cliff right here, and if you were to stand on the edge of the cliff and you were to stand so close that you could slip off, breaking the law would be the equivalent of falling over the cliff. And occasionally on the news, we watch the news every day, occasionally on the news you, you hear about these people that step too close. Just this week there was a girl hiking uh, in Hawaii, walked up to the base of a waterfall. She's holding her phone, showing the waterfall. She places her left foot on a nice dry stone, perfectly good. She puts her right foot, you're watching this on the camera, on a mossy spot, and off she goes, tumbling down, <laughs> and it's all, she's holding the camera, she doesn't want to lose her camera, tumbles down the waterfall, collapses along, breaks a bunch of ribs. She says, I'll never do that again, and I was thinking, like, I hope you don't do that again. But what the religious leaders of the Jews did is say, we don't want you to get anywhere near the cliff, so we're going to build a hedge back from the cliff so that you don't ever even get near the cliff. When I went to junior high at Pioneer Junior High in Upland, uh, it was the strictest school I've ever been into in my life. Girls had to wear dresses every day. Even on cold winter days, it gets really cold here in California. And so uh, they, they would let you wear pants on the way to school, but the moment you got to school, you had to change into a dress. They had such specific rules saying that you can't even hold hands with a girl. And we're going like, why? And they're going, because holding hands leads to pregnancy. And I was thinking like, I'm not sure that's the way it works. <clears throat> well, let me explain. The pregnancy was the cliff. Holding hands was the hedge, not just a few feet from the cliff, but way back uh, away from the cliff. And they made all these rules to try to hem you in to protect you from breaking God's law. So in one sense, you might say, I think I can begin to understand what they were doing. In Dubuque, there are these bluffs that overlook uh, the Mississippi River, and there's one particular bluff where they have the grave of the founder of our city, and it's in a particularly nice spot. It's, it's a good 150 feet uh, straight down. And there are railings there, but there's nice sturdy rocks out there, and I had my two boys with me. I, I don't know where Carol was in this. It was just the two boys and me. 
And I wanted to actually stand on the edge and look straight down to where uh, the original people had camped down by the creek down there. And so I climbed over the railing and stood on the edge of the cliff and looked straight down. Before I knew it, both of my little boys, and they were little, had also climbed over the rail and we were also standing on the edge. I was going like, no, I didn't mean for you to cross the railing. I, I meant just for me to cross the railing because I trust me, but I don't trust you. So you need to get back on the other side of the railing. You see the hypocrisy of what's taking place here? You're making rules that you're confining other people that you don't even obey yourself. And you're making such strict standards you can't even keep up with them. One time when uh, my oldest son was just a little tyke at uh, grade school, I was sent uh, to pick him up that particular afternoon. We usually took turns on these kinds of things. And the street was all parked up and there was a very uh, little place that I could park. And so I found a parking spot on the other side of the main street in front of the school down a steep hill. And as soon as he got out of school, he came running my direction where we would normally uh, be parked. And he could see me from the top of the hill looking down. And with great joy, he was excited that I was there. And so he ran down the hill as fast as he could go. The street was completely parked up. And on the opposite side of the street, closest to him, there was a big truck that would block his view. And there was another truck coming down the road toward him. And as I began to calculate in my mind, I realized He's so excited to see me, his eyes are on me. The truck parked on the curb is blocking his view. He can't see the truck that's coming. The timing is gonna be awful. He's going to run out in the street at the same time that the truck hits him. Dubuque is cold, so the windows are up. And so, I'm, this is back when we had cars that actually had crank windows. We didn't have electric windows. So I was like cranking the window down as fast as I could and I let a blood-curdling scream, and it worked. He stopped on the curb. He was going to run right across the street and get hit by a truck. And I made a new rule, just like a Judaizer. I said to all of my children, I think I had three at this time, thou shalt not cross the street without your father. Now that was way, way too strict. And it didn't last very long. They'd play with a ball out in the front yard, and the ball would roll out in the street, and they're going, like, can't go in the street. Somebody's going to have to go get Dad, you know? And so, like, <laughs> they, they find Dad, and Dad has to leave what he's doing and come out and go out in the street, get the ball, bring the ball back, and say, well, try to keep it in the yard, all right? And you know, a few minutes later, okay, the ball's out in the street. Now we can't go into the street. And you begin to realize, as human beings, there's something about rules that we like to collect. And we like to evaluate people on the basis of rules. What I want to tell you is the book of Galatians is a freeing book, a book that teaches us it's not so much about rules as it is about love. And I'm not saying I'm against God's rules. In fact, God has very specific instructions as to what's healthy and what's not healthy. But what I'm saying is, they are given to us in the form of love in which he wants us to sense his love for us and draw us in to loving him in return so that the instructions he gives us as to how to please him 
are not seen by us as tools to manipulate him, tools to get what we want from him, but expressions of how we would reflect his love back to him and that he is graciously, and I mean that as the key concept of the entire letter, he is graciously giving us what we don't deserve, blessing us, and allowing us to have a deep and fruitful relationship with him. Oh, I hope you love reading the book of Galatians. And if you finish that and want more, read the book of Romans. It's Galatians on steroids. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us as you have revealed it to us in, our word, in your word. We pray that we would not be gullible when people try to control us with rules. But instead, we pray, we be the kind of people who understand that you, at great cost to yourself, at infinite cost to yourself, have made provision for our salvation by sending your son to die in our place. He took our debt and paid that debt that we could not pay. And it made it possible for you to pour out your anger towards our sins on him. And then forgive us as we receive the gift of salvation that you offer to us by grace and we receive by faith. We pray that each one of us would love you and accept the gifts you offer and reflect the love that you've shown to us back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.